Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Thrusting space science into the audio dimension. This is Naked Astronomy. On the Naked Astronomy podcast this month, Martian minerals. We find out why the Nili Fosse region of Mars would be a good place to look for evidence of life, but it's just too dangerous to get a closer look. It is extremely frustrating, and this is what we deal with every landed mission going to Mars. Scientists are pulling on one end of the rope saying we really want to go to these interesting places. Engineers are going, whoa, we're not landing anywhere near that. They're pulling back on the other end of the rope saying take us to the desert. Unfortunately, our capabilities are not such that we can land on those places at the moment. And is our solar system normal? We look at exoplanets to find out if we are the weird ones in the universe. Plus, news of the shrinking moon, buckyballs in space, and an increase in solar activity. I'm Ben Valsler from The Naked Scientists, and this is Naked Astronomy. Supported by the STFC and Cambridge University's 800th anniversary team, this is Naked Astronomy. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. As usual, we start by joining our expert panel to catch up with the latest news in astronomy and cosmology. Andrew Ponson couldn't be with us this month, but I was joined by Dominic Ford, and here's Carolyn Crawford. It's a lovely story coming from a recent analysis of some images taken by NASA's Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter spacecraft. What they've discovered are about 14 fault lines extending for several miles in the lunar crust. And these are just like, you know, long cracks in the ground. But the key thing about these is these look quite recent. They're, they're very fresh, they're very sharp, and they overlap small craters. And we think small craters are the most recent craters on the moon. Certainly there are no large craters overlapping them. So they're, if you like, the topmost feature on the, the lunar crust. Therefore, they're the most recent one. And these are found all over the moon, not just at one latitude, suggesting they're due to some global process rather than something you know, very local. And the idea is that the moon is shrinking and it's shrinking because it's cooling. So it's getting colder at the core. The moon was originally hot when it formed. I mean, you had lots of heat created when it was being bombarded by asteroids and meteors in the early part of its life. And also there's been decay of radioactive elements. But it's been cooling for the billions of years since. But it's only more recently that it's actually started to shrink. The core has cooled down and contracted and poured in the crust and then formed these sort of scarp-like features on the surface. It's not shrinking very fast. They reckon it's only by about up to 100 metres. 
And this is stretched over somewhere in the last billion years. I mean, I say recent, but it could be anywhere between like the last 100 million and the last billion years. But it's still, again, an interesting new feature about the moon and its geological history that we didn't, didn't know. I mean, we do see such features on other planets, such as Mercury has much longer ones. They can run for hundreds of miles and they've got these fault lines that are like a mile deep. But that's suggesting that Mercury was a lot more molten when it formed and it's undergone a lot more cooling, a lot more dramatic cooling because it's also bigger than the moon. So still, it's I find it interesting that something as simple, well, not simple, but as nearby as our, our moon can still throw up new surprises for us. Thank you, Carolyn. Dominic, what have you seen for us this month? Well, I've seen a fascinating paper by Samir Slim and Michael Rich who've been studying a sample of elliptical galaxies which... Normally, galaxies thought to have long ago run out of gas and to be populations of stars growing old together with no younger stars in them. Now, this paper presents ultraviolet observations of 29 elliptical galaxies. In 22 of the galaxies studied, they find extended ultraviolet emission using the advanced camera for surveys on the Hubble Space Telescope. And this is almost certainly associated with young stars in these galaxies, really quite unexpected. And these are really beautiful images. A couple of these galaxies show spiral arms, not features you would normally expect to be associated with elliptical galaxies. And 15 of these galaxies show ring-like structures in their outskirts, showing that stars seem to be forming preferentially on the edges of these galaxies. Now, these are not only beautiful images, they're also quite puzzling, because... Why have we got our ideas about elliptical galaxies so wrong? Why have people always thought they have no star formation when in fact now we're seeing this ultraviolet emission? And what the authors of this paper think is that perhaps people have tended to study the centres of these galaxies and the star formation is happening more on the outskirts where people haven't looked so much. The other interesting question is where the gas fueling this star formation comes from. One possibility is that it's falling in from intergalactic space or perhaps small galaxies are falling into these objects and rejuvenating them and triggering them to undergo a new burst of star formation. But I think there are a lot of mysteries here still to be answered. Thank you, Dominic. Now, for our next story, buckyballs. Now, these have always sounded like something that belonged in science fiction, but now they seem to have turned up in space. Yes, well, we know there are many molecules out there in interstellar space, you know, from the quite prosaic, you know, molecular hydrogen, carbon monoxide, carbon dioxide, and even much more exotic things such as methane, acetone, even formaldehyde. But we now know that there are buckyballs out there in space. Now, buckyball is also known as C60, so it's 60 carbon atoms arranged in kind of like a, a lattice shaped ball. And they were first discovered in the laboratory on Earth 25 years ago. And these are observed in many places on Earth. And we've expected to find them in space because we know that the chemistry out in space is carbon-rich and carbon-based. But even though people have sought, they've not discovered them till now. And so this is a result by a team led by Jan Kami and the collaborators where they've looked at a planetary nebula. So this is the outer layers of a sun-like star that have been, it's kind of puffed them away after the end of its life. And these layers are often rich in carbon. So the the buckyballs are detected because they left their spectral imprint on the infrared spectrum of the light from the nebula. So this was detected using NASA's Spitzer Space Telescope. 
And it matches exactly what you expect when you see these molecules in the lab. The thing that I was quite interested in is why they've been discovered in this planetary nebula and we haven't seen them anywhere else in space. And the key thing they think, it depends on the temperature. Most of the C60 in space is probably too cool to be detected. You've just happened to have caught it in this warm environment with the recent shedding of the planetary nebula by the star. And maybe it's just warm enough that you can catch it where it makes this spectral imprint in the infrared. And so, in fact, they may have been very lucky to get this completely unambiguous detection. But still, there you go. It's now the largest molecules known to exist in space. Now, from carbon-60 out in space to right back down on Earth, using lots and lots of computers to discover something interesting. Dominic, what's this story about? Well, in the past 10 years or so, quite a number of so-called distributing computing projects have appeared on the internet, also known as citizen science. And these are projects where scientists needing powerful computers have invited people at home to donate their spare CPU cycles. This is when your computer is sitting on your desk, not doing anything, and you can set it to work on scientific projects. So there's been things like uh, SETI at home, where they're using your computer as a screensaver to do some work for them. Also, I think there have been genetic sequencing screensavers that do the same sort of thing. Is this what we're talking about? Yes, and this is really a win-win situation because people at home can donate to scientific projects they care about and the scientists then get supercomputers that they can use for their research. And one such project is Einstein at Home, which over the last couple of years has been experimentally sending out data from one of the world's largest radio telescopes, this is the Arecibo radio telescope, to a quarter of a million people at home and inviting them to look for evidence of pulsars in the data. Now, these are stars which are very compact. They're made entirely of particles called neutrons and they spin incredibly fast. And you can spot them because they appear to flash as they spin. Now, this month, they've announced their first discovery of a pulsar and this is quite an unusual object it turns out they think it's a very old pulsar but it's also spinning incredibly fast 40 times a second now i think it's difficult to draw conclusions from just one first discovery but this is really demonstrating that these distributing computing projects allow scientists to do things that they would never otherwise be able to do with computers on a par with the most powerful supercomputers in the world and it will be really exciting to see what these projects throw up in the future now, a few months ago, we were talking about Galaxy Zoo, which relies on using people all over the world to categorise galaxies. Is this the same sort of thing? It's slightly different because Galaxy Zoo is relying on people's eyes to pick out the structures of galaxies and distinguish spiral galaxies from elliptical galaxies. And that is really great because the human eye turns out to be very good at distinguishing different structures, whereas computer software can make mistakes. Thank you very much. And finally, we have a bit more evidence that our sun seems to be waking up. Yes. As we know, the sun's been going through a very sort of protracted solar minimum, uh, much deeper and longer than we'd usually expect from the, the normal solar cycle. But during August, we've had some evidence that it is becoming active once again. Right in the first week of August, there were a couple of major solar flares that triggered uh, huge releases of material in what's known as a coronal mass ejection. This is when you have this huge plasma of charged particles 
released from the sun and is all embedded in a magnetic field and then it flows out through the interplanetary medium. And when these particles reach the Earth, it causes some strong aurora that we're seeing not just in the far north of the planet, you know, usually it's within the Arctic Circle, but down as far south as northern Germany and Denmark. And unfortunately, didn't quite make it down as far as Cambridge. I was out there looking, but no aurora here. And not just that, but during August, we've also had the event that we finally got up to five sunspots on the sun's disk at once. And given that for like three quarters of last year, there were no sunspots at all on the, the sun's disk, it's really showing that things are beginning to change now. You sound very excited about this, but is it really good news? It's reassuring news that we understand enough about the sun. I mean, we have these ideas of how the sun works and it's always fascinating when it starts to deviate from the expected behaviour because that gives you this chance just to learn a bit more about the sun and it just kind of tests your understanding. But it is almost a relief that it is beginning to get back on track to where we expect it to be so that maybe we've still got a bit more to learn about the sun but the basic understanding is still sound. I think also if the sun were to behave in a very unexpected way at this particular time, that could be quite bad for people trying to model climate change because obviously a lot of people are trying to understand the changes taking place in the Earth's atmosphere at the moment. And if the sun were to change in its behaviour, it would be much more difficult to untangle different effects going on. So good news for both the astronomers and the climate modellers, as well as people hunting the aurora. That was Dominic Ford and before him Carolyn Crawford with a roundup of space science news. They'll be back later on to tackle your questions. Expand your mind and Neptune in. Naked Astronomy, the stellar space science show. For more episodes of this programme, look us up online at nakedscientist.com forward slash astronomy. I'm Ben Valsler and this is Naked Astronomy. Still to come, we ask the question, is the solar system normal? And compare us to the over 400 planetary systems known to date. But first, in the August edition of the journal Earth and Planetary Science Letters, a study identifies a region of Mars that contains carbonates. These are minerals indicative of previous exposure to water. Ancient water flowing on Mars is not a new idea, but because these rocks are very similar to a region in Australia where we find some of the earliest evidence of life on Earth, researchers want a closer look. I spoke to Adrian Brown, first author on the paper and planetary scientist at the Carl Sagan Centre at the SETI Institute, California. Our paper was following up uh, detection by an instrument on board the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter, which is a spacecraft orbiting Mars at the moment. It's been in orbit since 2006. This particular mineral that we found in 2008 was called carbonate or basically any rock that has in it a CO3 molecule and that's bonded to iron or magnesium or calcium. Typical carbonates can be like limestone which is what makes up most of the white cliffs of Dover. In this case on Mars we found a magnesium carbonate called magnesite this was um, long sought for on Mars because we expect that if there's been water on Mars in the past, while there's been CO2 in the atmosphere of Mars, then that CO2 in the atmosphere will react with the water and the rocks on the surface and form carbonates on the surface. So the instrument uh, called CRISM, which is the Compact Reconnaissance Imaging Spectrometer for Mars, it's a near-infrared spectrometer, 
It can view visible wavelengths that we see with our eyes, plus also into the near infrared, so out to four microns, so light that's invisible to us, but is very crucial to be able to detect minerals such as carbonates and, and also clay minerals as well. TRISM was designed exactly to look for these minerals and it's been very successful. And that finding came out of observations on a location that we call Nili Fosse, which is near, actually it's where the Beagle 2 was destined to land in a crater called Isidus Planitia. But uh, Nili Fosse is the only place that we've found carbonates in rock outcrops on Mars to date. We've been trying to work out more about how these carbonates may have formed. And I did my PhD work in a region of Australia called the Pilbara. It's a really special place on Earth. It's been at the surface of Earth for at least three and a half billion years. So about three quarters of the history of Earth's geological history is recorded in the rocks in the Pilbara. And that is where we find the earliest signs of convincing life in the form of stromatolites, which are wavy laminated rocks that are caused by microbial mats sticking layers together in a way that uh, couldn't be done without life. So we can tell that there was life in these three and a half billion rocks in the Pilbara. And the mineralogical signatures that I was recording when I was looking at the Pilbara, I have now compared to those on Mars at, at Nili Fosse, and we've found that the minerals, the mineral suite, is very similar in the two places. And we put forward the hypothesis that Nili Fosse could be a place on Mars that we might find evidence of previous life and uh, that this would be an excellent location for us to send a rover or even a landed mission with humans on it in the future. Is it entirely safe to assume that the processes that form the Pilbara region in Australia are the same chemical processes that are going on on Mars? They're definitely the same chemical processes because the two regions started off with the same type of rocks, basaltic rocks that come out of a normal volcano. And then those have been altered with water and heat to form these carbonate minerals as what we call alteration minerals. So definitely we've had the same chemical reactions to form these minerals that we can see. The question is, we also see in the Pilbara signs that life was using this hydrothermal energy source to survive. And those energy sources would have been available on Mars as well. But whether they were actually used by life, i.e. whether life was there on Mars to use this energy source... That's still an open question. So the presence of this type of rock in and of itself tells us that certainly some of the conditions for life existing were fulfilled. It was wet. There was a source of energy. How can we take this a step further? What do we need to do to then look for the evidence of life that we find here on Earth? Well, what we'll need, unfortunately, what we'll need is another mission to this area. So we will need to send a lander to check these rocks out on the surface. CRISM has done just about everything that can be done from an orbital instrument and we'll be definitely doing more surveys of the area and getting better maps and we'll know the best locations to land on close to these carbonate outcrops and we'll probably 
plot areas where rovers could go to go from where they landed to the outcrops most safely and efficiently. But to follow up the life question, we really need a landed mission to the surface, probably with robots first, but uh, investigating uh, life signs on the surface of of a geological surface or in a geological context really requires humans to do the job efficiently. It's much easier for humans to use their intuition to follow up on hunches and to operate independently. So I would think that this site will probably one day be explored by humans in order to learn about the possibility of life on Mars. We do have a rover mission that is launching next year. That's the Mars Science Laboratory. And the landing sites are currently being chosen. And unfortunately, Nili Fosse was put forward as a landing site, but it was rejected in the last round due to engineering constraints. There was not an area that was safe for the rover to land that was close enough to the Nili Fosse carbonate outcrops. And that will probably remain the case until humans eventually get to Mars and are able to do a manned landing where they can control their descent onto the surface and make sure that they don't hit any boulders. must be very frustrating to know that there's this area that is probably the best place to look for evidence of ancient life, but we can't get to it. It is extremely frustrating, and this is what we deal with every landed mission going to Mars. Scientists are pulling on one end of the rope saying, we really want to go to these interesting places. We really want to go to Valles Marineris. It's the biggest trench canyon that we have in the solar system. Engineers are going, whoa, we're not landing anywhere near that. They're pulling (laughs) back on the other end of the rope saying, take us to the desert, take us to somewhere that's got no rocks, no undulations. And also, we don't want it too high because we need the atmosphere to slow us down on our entry, descent and landing stage. That means that we can't land on Olympus Mons, the biggest volcano on Mars. So some of the features that are just yelling out to scientists, land here, land here, and Nili Fossi falls into this category as well. Unfortunately, our capabilities are not such that we can land on those places at the moment. So we have to wait till our capabilities can catch up with the science. But when we eventually do have a manned mission, when we eventually can explore this and look very closely, what will be the signatures of life that we're looking for? What will tell us there was definitely life here once? If we do find things such as stromatolites that we use here on Earth to date back the oldest life here on Earth, then that would be fantastic. And these are generally unambiguous life sign, depending on how developed they are. On Mars, it could be that bacteria and microbes didn't come up with the right technology to build stromatolites in which case we will be looking instead for more simple signatures, perhaps chemical signatures, such as carbon isotopes that can show that life was preferentially using lighter carbon isotopes. That's what does here on Earth, and we can track it using those. Unfortunately, in rocks that old and rocks that have been altered in the way that Nili Fosse probably has, we're not likely to find any dead ringers such as DNA or anything like that. But we're working very hard, and scientists are working very hard, on looking for biosignatures that are the breakdown products of DNA and complex organic molecules. So we're only now just starting to get that right in Earth's history that we understand a lot lot better. We're trying to do organic analyses of the breakdown products of life that are indisputable. So... 
things such as sterines are the breakdown products of life here on Earth. So if we continue to develop that here on Earth, then we might learn more about how we can use those biosignatures to eventually unlock the secrets of life on Mars. Adrian Brown explaining how manned missions to explore the Nili Fosse region of Mars, as well as a better understanding of the chemical signatures that life leaves behind, could help us find evidence of previous life on Mars. If you would like to know more, Adrian also coordinates the weekly SETI Institute seminars. They're free to attend and they're also posted online. We'll put links up at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Now, over 400 exoplanets, planets orbiting stars other than our Sun, have been found since the first was identified, but so far none of them look like our solar system. I spoke to Professor Melvin Davis of Lund University in Sweden to ask, is our solar system normal? That's a very good question, and the straight, simple answer right now is we don't know. The intriguing thing is that when people started finding planets or inferring, figuring out that there were planets around other stars, we actually found quite a surprise. So that the way that most planets have been found so far is actually using the sort of the, the, what's called the Doppler effect, the change in the wavelength of the light from a star as a star wobbles because a planet orbits around it. What they started finding from the beginning were planets, the mass of Jupiter or thereabouts, so that's not so surprising. But the strange thing was these Jupiters weren't out at Jupiter's orbit, which is, you know, the sort of orbits of the gas giants, Jupiter and Saturn, are between five and ten times the Earth-Sun distance. That's called an astronomical unit, is the distance between the Earth and the Sun. These planets were much closer in. In fact, the first one found was going around its star only in a few days. So how do these planets end up, rather than on a Jupiter-like orbit, an orbit even closer in the Mercury sometimes, and often orbits like Venus or the Earth? That's the first mystery, and they're not like the solar system. It's easier to find planets that are on shorter orbits that are closer into their star with this, this wobble technique, because if a planet is going around only in 20 years, rather than in a few days, we have to wait, you know, we have to measure the motion of that star for 20 years to find the orbit. And so it's not surprising that the first planets we found in this technique are actually ones on shorter orbits. But the question, as you say, is, is, is that normal? Is the solar system normal with the Jupiter going around in, you know, many, many years, tens of years? Is that normal or are these ones that we've found so far normal? And the answer is we don't really know right now, but we do know that the longer we look, we keep finding planets at wider and wider orbits. So now of these 450 planets, a few of them have orbits just about as wide as Jupiter's. So an interesting question in the, in the coming years, and it really will be in the coming five or ten years, do we find lots and lots of planets at those further distances, at a sort of regular orbit like Jupiter, or do we just keep finding mostly ones that are much closer in? And then we'll begin to answer that question, is the solar system usual or not? So why should it matter if the solar system isn't normal? It matters for us, of course, because if we have a Jupiter close in, say, at the Earth's orbit, Jupiter is a massive planet. You can't have another lower mass planet like an Earth with life on it in an orbit very close to that planet because planets pull on each other. So planets orbit a star and then most of the force they feel is the star's gravity. But the interesting bit beyond that, the complex bit, is the force between the multiple planets. So imagine we have two or three planets in a, in a solar system. The force between the planets actually tugs on the planets a little bit. In fact, our solar system is not a static thing. We always think of the orbits going round almost in circles, right? Kepler showed us that they were actually ellipses. They're slightly squashed circles. 
But actually, there's forces all the time between all the planets. And in fact, Jupiter and Saturn are wobbling all the time. They're actually pulling on each other and exchanging spin, angular momentum, back and forth every few tens of thousands of years. But it's stable. The system will be stable. You can take the solar system and model it on a computer, a computer program. And what happens is the orbits change a little bit. They wobble, but they wobble back and forth, rather like a swinging pendulum. The amplitude doesn't grow. But what we find, actually, and what we've been working on is asking the question, the following question, can you start off with a system that looks like a solar system then with planets on wide orbits and make it unstable? So imagine we take the solar system, but we squeeze the planets a little bit closer together. Or really, equivalently, we could just increase the mass of Jupiter and Saturn, make them more massive, so they've got more gravitational force between each other. And again, their force grows compared to the force from the star. And what we actually find, and others have done this too, is that we can make systems unstable that way. And that's interesting because imagine a solar system that becomes unstable, then the orbits become more and more eccentric, orbits actually cross, and planets start flicking each other out. And so when things get very close together, the gravitational force between two planets on a close encounter can eject one planet and leave the other one closer to the star, more bound to the star. So that's a rather interesting way of taking a Jupiter on a wider orbit kicking out another planet and leaving the Jupiter on a, a tighter orbit, making it closer to the star rather like the ones that are seen. So what can make a solar system be unstable? There's two ways of making a solar system unstable. It could just be that from birth it's unstable. But the other interesting question is the following. Can we really take truly the solar system, the one that if we left it alone, it would be stable? And can we mess it up somehow? And the answer is actually a rather worrying yes. So the, the, the short message is that the solar system is absolutely stable and we're quite safe where we are because we're in the sort of suburbs of the galaxy and we're not near other stars. But the interesting point is that stars aren't formed on their own. They're formed in groups and clusters. They're called clusters. It's just a group of stars. And these clusters are rather tightly packed. And that means that stars can pass by the planetary systems in these young stellar clusters. If we put a solar system inside that cluster, one can ask the following question. How often does a solar system in that cluster get messed up? What I mean by that is how often does a star, another star, fly past that solar system, that planetary system, and perturb the orbits a little bit? And that's some of the work we've been doing here in Lund. What we've actually done is taken a planetary system, imagine another star pass within perhaps 1,000 AU, 1,000 Earth-sun distances, so quite a distant encounter. But what it does then is change the orbits of the planets just a little bit. But then, because this solar system, this planetary system, is what's called chaotic, a small change in the orbits can lead to a big change later on. But what we find is actually rather interesting, because sometimes even quite modest changes in the orbits can lead to uh, extreme outcomes. I, I like to show in when I give talks, I have a, a computer simulation, a video of a computer simulation, where we just take the solar system and slow down Saturn by 10%. But then rather than ticking along, changing angular momentum between Jupiter and Saturn, slowing down Saturn by 10% in our current solar system leads to a, a completely different outcome. Uh, Jupiter and Saturn scatter off each other. Saturn is pushed out and actually ejects Neptune and Uranus, which are the next planets further out. And Jupiter is pushed inwards a little bit and it ejects Mars. And in some of the simulations, after a few million years, it even ejects, uh, I think, Venus and sometimes even the Earth. So slight changes in the properties of the planetary systems can lead to completely different outcomes. And it turns out that the chance of this happening is interesting. It's about five or between 5, 10, 15% of stars will have these close encounters. 
So in other words, if I'm a planetary system in a stellar cluster, I have a sort of one in six chance, perhaps, of being messed up in this way. And again, if I'm messed up by a flyby, what's left behind, the planets left behind, could look rather like the exoplanet systems we see. But it's only one in six chance. So we've been, you know, it's not surprising that the solar system survived this phase, because for every six solar systems, one is messed up by a flyby, but probably around five will survive that early period in their lives when they're in this young stellar cluster. So we came up with a word, actually, we call them singletons, which what we mean by a singleton is a star that's born single, doesn't have a binary companion, and it doesn't have these close flybys that mess up the planets. We've spoken about planetary migration before on the Naked Astronomy podcast, and sort of concluded that a system with a hot Jupiter, one of these gas giants orbiting very close to the host star, is actually very unlikely to contain other planets because of the process and the immense destruction that would have been caused as it migrated inwards. Should we be looking at stars that don't have hot Jupiters in order to try and find stable systems? Well, that's an interesting question, and that's exactly your point is, is correct, that with migration, basically a planet moves sort of is dragged through this young uh, protoplanetary system containing the gas and the dusty disk, and the planet sort of spirals in slowly towards the star. And so one can imagine then any planets closer in would have spiraled in also and ended up inside the star. So it's certainly true that if you want to find a, a terrestrial planet at a few AU where you might have life, then, then we don't look for systems containing hot Jupiters, we think. Unless... We could have a situation, two, two ways out, really. One situation is if we had terrestrial planets forming later. So imagine we formed a, a Jupiter very early on in the planetary system's life, and that Jupiter migrated in. And sort of at the very end, some more lumps of rock got together and formed a self-gravitating lump of rock and made a terrestrial planet that was already then further out. It's possible that that could, could happen, though less likely. Studies and calculations, not ours, but others, show that that's unlikely to happen. And the other intriguing possibility I should mention for fun is not so much with a hot Jupiter, but imagine we had a Jupiter at the uh, 1 AU, the Earth-Sun distance. Actually, calculations showed that 60 degrees ahead of Jupiter and behind Jupiter are what are called Lagrange points. They're actually stable places. And they actually showed in some calculations that sometimes, though again, very rarely, when you have lots of planets scattering, you could actually have a terrestrial planet, a much lower-mass planet, on the same orbit as a massive planet like a Jupiter, but 60 degrees ahead or behind it. So that's a rather intriguing possibility, though much less likely, people think, than having a system like our own. Melvin Davis from Lund University explaining how we really don't know whether or not our solar system is the odd one out. This is Naked Astronomy, the space science podcast from the Naked Scientists. If you've got any questions or comments for us, get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But now we return to Carolyn and Dominic to take on your space science questions. Our first question this week for Carolyn Crawford came in from Rick Paulson in Oregon. He said, we can see the effect of the moon's gravitational force on the ocean tides, but what else does our moon influence? Well, I assume he wants something astronomical rather than me to wax lyrical about the effect of moonlight on the species of Earth. So I guess the strongest thing that the moon also influences is not just the tides, but also the length of our day here on Earth. Because there's this mismatch that I believe I've talked before between the rate that the Earth rotates and the speed at which 
the moon moves around in its orbit and pulls the bulk of the oceans behind it in the tides. And this mismatch creates a sort of friction which acts as a break on the Earth's rotation. So the Earth is gradually slowing down and the day is getting longer. This is happening literally on geological timescales. It's at the rate of one or two milliseconds per century. But what is interesting is actually how we come to this number and how we estimate it. I mean, obviously, we can do computer simulations of the Earth when it was formed, and we can say that maybe the day was perhaps about six hours long there. But we can actually measure the day length hundreds of millions of years ago from coral growth. And we can see a change from the early Devonian times where the coral growth suggests a year that lasts 400 days. And by Upper Cretaceous, it's more like 370 days in a year. Even in more recent times, we can use historical records of observations of eclipses. An eclipse could only be at a certain day, time of day or night, observed from a certain place of Earth, if the day was slightly shorter in the past. So again, I think that's, that's a lovely idea that the moon is gradually slowing down the Earth. So as well as shrinking, it's slowing us down at the moment. Thank you very much. Dominic, we've had a question from Ricky Lawson, uh, who said he's just found the podcast and he loves it, which is very nice to hear. Thank you, Ricky. And he said that he heard in a show a while ago that looking further away from us effectively allows us to look back in time. And he wants to know if there's a limit, not a technological limit, but a physical limit to how far back in time we can actually see. Well, yes, Ricky's absolutely right. If you look at objects which are successively further away, then the light from those objects is taking successively longer to reach you. And so you're seeing them not as they are now, but as they were in the past. For example, if you look at the Andromeda galaxy, that's two million light years away. So you're seeing that galaxy as it was two million years ago. Now in astronomy, things don't change very much in two million years. So that doesn't affect much. But if you start picking out appreciable numbers of faint distant galaxies at, say, a billion light years away, you will start to expect to see differences between those galaxies and nearby galaxies. So how far can you push this? Well, the most distant galaxy yet seen is about 12.8 billion light years away. And that's getting quite close to a theoretical limit of about 13.5 billion light years. Because as you move back in time, the universe gets hotter and... As it gets hotter, it approaches a temperature of about 5,000 degrees centigrade, at which point the hydrogen in the universe becomes ionised. And then that gas is no longer transparent. You can't see through it because photons scatter off the protons and electrons in that ionised hydrogen. But there's still this fascinating window between 12.8 billion light years and 13.5 billion light years, which we have yet to probe. And we think that's a really fascinating region to probe because it's where much of the structure in the universe formed. So people are still striving to look further and further into the past and the distance. What sort of tricks do we need to use to be able to look into that window? Essentially, the problem is that these galaxies are incredibly faint. So you need a big telescope that collects a lot of light. So that's what we need to do to see a bit further into the past. Carolyn, we've had a question from Karen Miller, and uh, she said again she was listening to this podcast. Thank you very much, Carolyn. It's nice to know that you're listening. And she wants to know, how long does it take for a star to become lit? So when does the fusion kick off? Ah, uh, yes. Well, individual stars form in very cold, dense pockets of gas and dust within 
interstellar clouds. And the process is due to gravitational contraction. So if you like, it's, it's self-gravity pulling all the particles in the cloud closer together and they get dense enough and they start to have this runaway process where it's pulling more matter in. So as the matter begins to condense together, stuff falling under gravity produces energy and technically it's converting gravitational potential energy to heat energy. The core of this little pocket of gas gets denser and hotter and gravity is squeezing it ever tighter and it's getting hotter and hotter. And you reach a point where you have a hot spinning ball of gas and when it's got to temperatures of about 18 million degrees right in the core, that's the point when nuclear fusion begins. So at that point, you have a protostar, but you don't see it immediately. It's completely obscured by the rest of the gas and dust. And you have to wait really until in the visible, you can see the star where it's either incorporated that material from its surroundings or more or less blasted it away into space with a stellar wind. But the question was about how long all this process takes. And like so many things in a star cycle, it depends on the mass of the star. And there are all kinds of ramifications because uh, as the cloud collapses i've told you it heats up it gains energy and some of that will go into heat heating the innermost core of the star but some of it may heat up the surroundings stop it collapsing under gravity and it's just that more massive stars are much more effective about radiating away the extra heat so if you have a star like our sun maybe it takes about a hundred thousand years to go from this rotating cloud of gas and dust down to form the hot protostar and maybe up to about 50 million years until you've got temperature and pressure sufficient in the core to ignite nuclear fusion. If you have a much more massive star, say about 20 times the mass of our sun, all of that can happen within a few tens of thousands of years. Whereas the very lowest mass stars, we call these M stars, the least massive stars can take several million years to get to that point. So there's quite a variety Speaking of varieties, Dominic, we've had a question from Johan Mann who wants to know why the Saturn V rocket used different varieties of fuel for different stages. When you're designing a rocket engine, there are really two things to consider. There's how much thrust you want from it and there's how much control you want to have over that thrust. So whether you want to to turn your engine on and off and produce small bursts of thrust. And once those questions are answered, you design the cheapest rocket you can to meet that specification. Now, putting cost aside, the best rocket fuel you can use is liquid hydrogen and liquid oxygen. And the reason for that is that it's very easy easy to control. Those are both liquids, so you can pump them and you can stop pumping them and your rocket stops thrusting. And also, you get a lot of thrust for every kilogram of fuel. You get one chemical reaction for every oxygen atom and two hydrogen atoms. So a lot of reactions per unit fuel. But the problem is that liquid hydrogen is incredibly expensive to handle. Hydrogen is only a liquid below a temperature of minus 250 degrees centigrade. And so it has to be continually refrigerated cryogenically. And that's really incredibly expensive. So when you want to burn a lot of fuel, say on liftoff, if you can find a cheaper fuel, that's going to save you a lot of money. So in the Saturn V rocket, for example, they used kerosene, rather similar to aircraft fuel, and that produces much less thrust per kilogram, but it's much cheaper. So you get much more thrust per dollar spent on fuel. The Space Shuttle actually uses solid-state rockets that give you more or less no control once you set light to them. They just burn rather like a firework, 
but you don't need much control on liftoff. You just want to get up a lot of speed very quickly. So as usual, there's a financial compromise that needs to be made with absolutely everything. Now, you mentioned the space shuttle there, which takes us to our last question from Dublin bus driver. And he wants to know if space shuttles have speedometers that work in space. And if so, how do they gauge their speed? Well, that's a great question. I actually had to do quite a bit of research on this myself. When we send probes out into the solar system, we tend to use radio telescopes to look at where they are in the sky and then measure their distance by measuring the travel time for radio message to go to the spacecraft and back. But for the space shuttle, there's actually a much simpler solution, which is almost rather disappointingly boring, that they use GPS, the same system that you use in sat-nav in your car. And the reason they can do that is because the space shuttle never actually goes up very high. When it's going to the International Space Station, it goes up to 350 kilometres the Hubble Space Telescope is a bit higher, 550 kilometres. But that's nothing compared to the altitude of the GPS satellites, which are up at about 26,000 kilometres. Now, your sat-nav in your car wouldn't work at those kind of altitudes. The American military have actually made it so it wouldn't work because they don't want GPS to be used by their enemies to launch rockets. But the US military, of course, have military-class GPS, which will work up to those kinds of altitudes. Now, I did do a bit more research into this because GPS only became operational in 1990. So for the first 10 years or so of its life, the shuttle actually had to use more complicated systems. And it's got quite a complicated array of accelerometers, which measure how fast it's accelerating. It's got radar, which measures distance above the Earth's surface, and also star tracking systems that look for constellations in the sky to know exactly where it's pointing at any given time. And those are still maintained as backup systems in case GPS fails. That was Dominic Ford and Carolyn Crawford discussing your space science questions. If you've got something for the panel to tackle, get in touch by email to astronomy at thenakedscientists.com. But that's all we have for this Naked Astronomy podcast. We'll be back soon with more space science news, interviews and questions. If you'd like to subscribe to the Naked Astronomy podcast, search for us on iTunes or join us at thenakedscientists.com slash astronomy. Naked Astronomy is produced by me, Ben Valsler, from The Naked Scientists and comes to you from Cambridge University with support from its 800th anniversary team and to the Science and Technology Facilities Council. Music